Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to The Shift the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author, Sam Baker. How does it feel to have your life turned upside down in your mid-40s? That's what happened to Laura Friedman Williams when, after 27 years with her husband, she discovered he was having an affair. It was something Laura had always thought that she'd somehow get past, but confronted with the reality that her husband was in love with another woman, she knew this was it. Life as she knew it was gone. Faced with the choice of going through the motions or getting back in the saddle, Laura realized it was time to move on. My biggest fear was not rejection. My biggest fear was that I had become invisible and that mm. I would not be seen anymore, that I would go somewhere and put myself out there, and dress up and smell nice, but nobody would see me because I lost so much of myself that I basically wasn't even there anymore. Three years on, her funny, frank, refreshingly rude account of that sexual reinvention available will bring hope to anyone who feels like they've just been tossed on the scrap heap. And crucially, for all those women who are wondering what might happen if they took that leap, I know you're out there. Laura talks laughing through the pain, finding your identity when you've lost yourself in motherhood and marriage, the joy of first time sex, second time around, the politics of pubic waxing, and learning to love her body at 50. I'm an open book. Like, you can ask me anything. There's nothing I won't talk about. Um, as evidenced by the book. <laughs> right, that's right. It's funny. I still feel the need to tell people that as if they haven't read 400 pages of me, like taking my clothes off and standing naked in front of them. But I still feel the need to say that because sometimes people say, is it okay for me to ask you about, you know, the end of your marriage? Or is it okay for me to ask you about what this feels like or whatever? And I'm always like, yeah, it's too late for me to be coy. It's too late. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's... <laughs> so there's nothing that anyone needs to apologize for asking me about. Okay, good. <laughs> be careful what you wish for. It's like... Yeah. <laughs> I like a few curveballs. It would keep me on my toes. It's fine. Okay. One of the things I really 
felt about the book, given that it was about, you know, the end of your marriage and kind of the end of your identity, as you had seen it, it is really funny. How did you manage that? Or was it the benefit of hindsight, really? I think even in the moment, sometimes when I was at my lowest points, I still found humorous moments because I am naturally a lighthearted person. I do feel things very deeply um, and I cry a lot. You know, I'm definitely a deep feeler, so I don't want to make it sound like I'm just laughing through life. But I do find the humor in situations and I'm definitely the person who's going to be laughing inappropriately during a funeral or, um, you know, making jokes way too soon when they're not quite called for yet. Just because, you know, I find things that are funny that we have to sometimes identify the pain and that sometimes there are things that are funny about it. It actually reminds me a long time ago, my very close friend, Jessica, and I made a list that we called the depressing list. And it was a really long running list of all the things in the world that we found really depressing. And it made us laugh hysterically. It was like, (laughs) at the top of the list was depression. Depression is really depressing. That was number one. And we both had struggled with depression and anxiety in our lives. So, you know, we weren't joking about something that wasn't personal for us, but that was top of the list. And then there were other things like buying flowers at like a pharmacy. That's depressing. So the things could be anything. It could be like your parents dying. That's depressing. But it's also depressing to buy like a a cheap box of chocolate for Valentine's Day. It could be anything. And that has, that has stayed with me always. This running list has been going for like 20 years and we'll still text each other and say, I just found something for the depressing list. So I think it was a lot of that. I think that humor that I brought in to the book, that's always a part of me. It's just who I am. What's the most recent thing you've put on the depressing list? (laughs) Well, um, so my father passed away a week ago and I got a phone call from the funeral home telling me that my father's ashes were ready. And the director of the funeral home kept calling my father, dad, like, hey, Laura, I just want to let you know that dad's ashes are ready to be picked up and dad's certificates are here. And I just found it so depressing that this man who didn't know my father kept calling him dad. And I was laughing mm-hmm. while he was doing it, crying at the same time, thinking, how do I tell my mother that her husband's ashes are ready? But also, is there any chance that this man will stop calling my father dad? And so (laughs) that was, that's the newest. (laughs) I should have known better than to ask, really. (laughs) (laughs) No, listen, that list is priceless. I mean, someday we joke all the time, Jessica and I, that someday that list is going to be a book. Would be a good follow-up, in fact. So let's just go straight in there. And if you don't mind telling us about how your marriage ended three years ago. Was it three years ago? It was three years ago, February. So um, I'd been with my husband since we were 20 and we were 47. We'd had three children and things were not right between us. I had a very unsettling feeling that things were not right and I couldn't identify it. It was a terrible feeling. I think when people talk about gaslighting, it was something I had never really understood. And I came to understand because I kept asking him, why do you seem so upset with me all the time? Why are you so angry? And he would say, it's work. It's not you. Don't worry about it. And I'd say, well, then I'm worried about what's happening at work. I don't want to bother you with it. I don't want you to stress about it. And it kept going. And sometimes he would get really angry at me and say, like, it's you. You're just such a nag. You're so hard to live with. And we've been really happily married. He was a very adoring husband, to be honest. My friends and I used to joke that he always seemed to adore me more than I did him. And so I felt very secure. I felt very safe and secure in my marriage, that he loved me so much that he loved me probably more than I even loved him. But eventually it got so bad between us. It was over a period of weeks, not months, but really weeks of feeling this unsettled that I thought if he's not going to tell me, I have no choice. I have to go into his phone. There's something I don't know. And so I did. I went into Uh his phone. Yeah. 
I don't even know how to describe the kind of gut punch that that was. It took me hours. You know, I looked through emails. There was nothing. I looked through texts. There was nothing. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so crazy. I can't believe I'm doing this. This is the most paranoid thing I've ever done. And then I found WhatsApp and it was locked. And I just knew immediately. And somehow I got into it. I think it was like a technical glitch, but of course I felt like it was meant to be. And I, I don't even remember the sentences. I just remember seeing the words, you know, divorce, love, soulmate, um, I don't know how to tell my wife, you know, I love you. I'm, I don't, we can't keep the secret any longer. And it was like, I don't know. It was like passing into another dimension. Like the life you knew is gone, completely turned off. Like it's dead. I always call it like a beheading. Like there's no coming back from it. You can't get back there. And I knew that. And it was terrifying. It was sickening. It was the most horrible feeling I've ever had in my life of like, nothing is what you think it is. And nothing is going to be as you thought it would be. What you had is gone. You know, I I didn't know that my marriage was going to be over. I thought there was a chance that we would rebuild it. But I knew that the life we had, the relationship we had, the person who I thought I was and who he thought that part, I knew that was over. Wow. And where did you go from there? Because I think I remember reading in the book that you said that you had kind of thought that maybe an affair was something that you could come back from. I did. I actually always had. And I remember being very young, even before we had children and getting together with other couples that we were friends with and talking about what if this happened to you? What what could you tolerate? You know, it was just so mm. like cute and naive now when I look back on it to think what my 25 year old self would think would happen when I had three children and found out that my husband was in love with another woman. And I thought for me, sex is sex. Like if my husband had felt the need to seek it out somewhere and it was a one night stand, he traveled a lot and there were no emotional connections. I really truly don't believe that that would have been a deal breaker for me. And I don't know because I wasn't in that position, um, but falling in love with somebody else, you know, knowing that mm. for many months he had been giving his love to another woman and coming back home to me and looking at me with sometimes resentment or anger, sometimes just like what I felt was loathing, you know, but the adoration was gone. And that I couldn't come back from. That's very different. Even the morning after he said to me, if I tell you that I had sex with her, it's all you'll focus on. And I said, you're wrong. That's the least of my problems right now. I Mm. read the texts. I saw that you're in love with her. That's the problem. Even if he had never slept with her, it wouldn't have mattered. He was in love with her. He was talking about leaving me. That was pretty profound. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because after, you know, a long commitment, boundaries move and change, but that emotional betrayal is it's a big one. I didn't see it coming. It was like a train had just plowed into me. And it took me, when I think back, I mean, it makes me sick to even think about. And we've come so far. You know, my husband and I are like we're really good friends again. My family is is pretty whole again. We're not together, but we've found a way to be a family with, you know, different addresses and we're still really united. But those first months and the the first days, it was like, I wished he had died. I just wished he had died. Mm -hmm. I just thought if he was dead, then at least I would have been able to continue with the illusion that we had been this happy family and that he and I had been a happy couple. I felt so like the betrayal. Oh, I... It's so intense to think that you're seeing the world one way. You know, you're married for so many years. It's like you're attached, right? You're like attached at the hip. Mm. And then somebody just slices it off and you're expected to go on and to continue mothering your children. 
and sending them to school and packing school lunches. I mean, it all seems so irrelevant. You know, I wanted to die. I wanted to die, but I couldn't because I had three children. And then my alternative was that he should die. You know, and that That sounds better to me. (laughs) And I thought, look, I get insurance money. Um, I don't have to like figure out all this visitation and my kids can just have this whole image. Like their father didn't have to just fall from their pedestal. They get to keep this vision of him as the idol that he always was for them. But unfortunately, we were both very healthy and alive. So we we had to just (laughs) wait through it. How old were your kids at this point? So my eldest daughter was 17 and a senior in high school, which was very unfortunate because she was a few months away from graduating and prom. And so there was already a lot happening for her emotionally. She and I were very close. So there was a lot happening emotionally for her in terms of separating from us um, and going off to college. My son was 14 and then my youngest was six. You know, I had the teenagers who were very aware of what was happening. You can't hide much from them. And then I had this little girl who was like, one day she woke up and her dad was gone. Literally, you know, he left. And he left because I asked him to, not because he wanted to. I insisted that he leave. But it was like he was there one day and the next day he was gone. And her siblings, you know, the teenagers were not speaking to him for maybe 10 months or so. So we'd always been this really close family. We had a lot of family dinners together and we went on trips and we did Sunday activities together. And suddenly it was either she was with me and her siblings or she was with her dad. But she couldn't process why the siblings weren't with her and her dad and why the dad was not allowed in the apartment anymore, why she had to be brought down to the lobby to meet him. It was very traumatic for her. And she couldn't even ask the questions. It didn't even occur to me to explain it to her until later because I couldn't even process what was happening. And how is she now? She's fantastic. I mean, she's such a bundle of joy. You know, she was sort of our late in life baby and her siblings are much older than her. And the beginning was so painful for her. In the beginning, I said to her, we just need a little time to figure out what's going to happen. And she woke up one morning and said, like, is three weeks or six weeks? Is this a long time? And I said, I guess it depends on what you're talking about. She goes, can you and dad figure this out yet? Can he come home? And it was so painful. It was also painful. But um, the flip side of that is that he has poured time and love into her and she spends a lot of time with him and they have a really beautiful relationship. It's much stronger than what he had with our eldest child. And he's building that too. Without me there to hold his hand and guide him and teach him every day how to be a father, he's figured it out on his own. And it has created these really beautiful relationships with his children, which really helped me uh, to forgive him fully because he's a good dad especially with my youngest daughter. I can't believe the relationship she has with him. Somehow, I think that my kids' relationships with each of us is stronger than before. Have you always been so optimistic? I think so. I think I was always a very optimistic person. I think I went through a lot of trauma in my early life, you know, with my father dying and my stepfather adopting us. And it was hard for us. He came into the marriage with children and my mom had children and they had another child. My mom had been through so much trauma in her life. So there was a sadness and difficulties in my family from the time I was a very young child. And I think I just tried really hard to always look at the bright side. I was very intense on looking at silver linings. I was always finding silver linings out of everything. And I remember once my daughter was probably after my husband and I split up and I was like, well, the silver lining is, I don't even know, you'll have another bedroom or this, whatever the silver <laughs> lining was. And she was finally like, you know what, mom, it's so annoying your silver linings because <laughs> sometimes I want to just feel bad. I don't want to talk about the silver lining. I want to talk about the dark cloud and you can't let me see it. It's like, you can't just sit there on the dark cloud. You're always looking for the way out. And it really hit me like, 
wow, you do not know how to sit with pain and not always find the sunshine. And I learned how to do it. And it's hard. Sitting with pain is hard. But I have to say, I actually had no choice when my marriage ended because I was so decimated. I was grieving as if he had died. I had no choice but to sit with the pain, but I've learned to do it even now. There are times where I just feel really down and I've learned to sit with it and not try to talk myself out of it. That said, I'm still me. So that means that even when I'm having those dark days, I always sit, I'll look at the weather to see when the next like blue sky, sunny day is coming. Yeah. And I sort of think like, that's the end yeah. of it for you. That day, you'll put some clothes on, you'll go for a long walk, you'll go to your favorite bakery and buy some bread that you'll pretend is for the kids, but you'll eat all by yourself. And there, there will be an end to this. So you give yourself 24, 48 hours to wallow. And then it's going to be time to get back out there again. So I don't know where that optimism comes from. A lot of it, I think, is from some of it's from my mom. And some of it is just always been who I, I've been. It's coming through now with you. You're like saying really glum things with a great big smile on your face. And <laughs> there's this kind of thing going on all the way through the book where you're talking about things that could be embarrassing or horrifying or upsetting and you're constantly able to leaven them which is it's a real skill actually how did you get to a point where you started to look outwards i i've spent so much time thinking about this because it was such a seismic shift so for months i'd really just been getting by i was surviving I, it was not living i wouldn't call it living i was just making do right it was like one foot in front of the other i was coaching myself every morning how to get out of bed how to talk to my children the dinners i was cooking for them like i knew they needed to be fed but i couldn't even think straight i'm a very big cook and i'm a very nutritious cook and i always make homemade meals and one day a girlfriend came over and there was like nothing to eat but a huge box of Lucky Charms. I don't know if that's a cereal in the UK, but it's like basically a junky cereal with marshmallow surprises, which I love. And she was like, I I'm speechless. I can't believe this is you. And I said, this is me now. This is what I can do. I can give my kids a box of Lucky Charms. So this went on. It was the depths of winter when I had found out about the affair. And then it became spring and it became summer. I love summer. I love summer so much. I feel very like I just love to be warm. I love the smells and the flowers and the things growing. And my youngest child and I had gone to Nantucket, this beautiful island for a few days with friends. And they took really good care of me. And my friend is, you know, kind of a bon vivant. And she was saying, you need to get back out. You just need to go flirt with men. Just put on a pretty dress. And I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't. I'm, I'm a shell. I'm a shell of myself. But when I got back home and I was sitting in a room by myself, my daughter was with her father, but we were in the same house for the weekend because it was our country house. I thought I feel myself slowly dying and I'm 47 years old. I just can't believe this is all that's left for me is that my life is going to be defined by what I have lost. And I just knew I could not live with that. So one of the things I feel very strongly about and has been a guiding principle in my life is that I not live with regret. And I think that helps me make a lot of decisions for myself. If I feel that it is something I will regret later, it will inform my decision. It's why I had another baby when I was 40 years old. I felt that I would regret not having a third baby. And then I luckily was able to have her. But there are a lot of things that I do in my life that are measured by that. If you don't do this, will you be sorry later? You have this one life. And I remember sitting in my bedroom thinking, I will regret not having a life. I will regret not being a human being who loves life. And I miss the Laura that used to be. I laughed a lot. I loved, I just loved my friends. I was, um, I just felt light, you know, and happy, a anxious too. I mean, believe me, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm making it sound like I'm Mary Sunshine and I'm not. <laughs> so um, anyway, so I sat in my bedroom by myself and I thought, 
I'm just going to do it. And I bought like a ticket to go to this local bar that was having a, a band. And I got myself changed and dressed and I went. And that was such a huge moment for me. It was such a pivotal moment because I was giving myself permission to see what it could be like to live again. And I had no idea what was going to happen. My biggest fear was not rejection. My biggest fear was that I had become invisible and that mm. I would not be seen anymore, that I would go somewhere and put myself out there and dress up and smell nice, but nobody would see me because I lost so much of myself that I basically wasn't even there anymore. And when somebody saw me and talked to me, I mean, I literally looked around like, are you talking? To, is there somebody behind me that you're <laughs> trying to talk to? I, can't, I could, couldn't believe this man was talking to me. And then I went back to his hotel and slept with him. And it was like, he woke me up. I mean, I talk about feeling sort of like I'm sleeping beauty and that I got that kiss that woke me up from a hundred year slumber. I felt very alive and I wanted to live. I wanted to live fully, not just to exist, but to thrive and grow. And I saw my chance and I took it and I knew I would regret it if I didn't take my chance. I would have had that chance 10 years later too. That chance never goes away, right? If somebody is listening to this and they've been in this traumatic situation and they don't get back out there, I did it very quickly. In hindsight, it was like five months later, I was back in the saddle. I think partly it's also my personality. I throw myself into what I do and then I go deep and I go hard. You know, I, I fall down rabbit holes like they were built for me. And I think I just did that, you know, with dating and with men, but you could do it at any time. You just have to decide that you're gonna live and then you live. It's hard. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy or that everything is going to change. I still had trouble getting out of bed in the morning. I still cried a lot, but I had a spark in me that said, that is not going to be what defines you. You're going to be defined by what you have, not by what you've lost. When you went out that night, did you think, I'm just going to see where this takes me? Did you think, I'm going to see if I've still got it? I see if I can pick someone up. What was your thought process? That was pretty much my thought. Like, I'm going to go and I'm going to see what it's like. So the last time I'd been on a first date, I was, I was 19 with, oh you know, my God. husband and we were friends. We'd been friends since we were, we were freshmen in college. We'd been friends. So when we went on a date, it wasn't really a date. It was like, we were friends going out to dinner and then we ended up kissing and dating and whatever. So that had been my last first date. And I was laughing when I was at the bar that night, a man bought me a drink and I thought a man has never bought me a drink. I was not even legal yet. I wasn't even of legal drinking age the last time I went on a date. And now a man is buying me a drink, but I didn't expect anything. And when I walked into this place, it was pretty funny because it's in the country upstate, it's pretty rural, but a cool little city in the middle of this rural landscape. And the people walking in were kind of old, like my parents' age, and they were lots of couples and foursomes. And I thought, this is so funny. Like, I can't believe that I thought I could make something happen here. Everybody is old and together. And I'm just going to sit conspicuously at a bar all by myself, all boiled yeah. up, looking like a divorcee out on the night looking for a good time. And how ridiculous. And I felt ridiculous. I felt conspicuous and ridiculous. And then when the man did start speaking to me, it felt surreal. It felt like I had just left my body and was living somebody else's. And so I thought, I'll just act this out. What do I think would happen if I was a sexy divorcee with kids and this was my Saturday night routine? What would happen? And I just went with it. Uh, I, I guess I'm a better actress than I knew. It was thrilling. I expected to be afraid. I don't know. I just expected to be upset. It was so thrilling. It was thrilling to be seen. It was thrilling to be desired. And it was thrilling to feel good. It was like that feeling, even if just for a few hours of not feeling like I wished I was dead, 
it was so exciting. And it was very much like I walked in, I thought I was invisible. I walked out, I waited for the gentleman to come out and meet me outside. And I thought, well, maybe he's escaping. Like maybe it turns out I really am invisible. But he came, it was like this validation. I don't even know if I ever knew his name. And I wish I could find him to just say, thank you. You resuscitated me. He was so nice to me. He was very kind to me. He was very patient and gentle. And I eventually confessed, you know, in all my bravado, and I was like really putting on a show, I finally was like, hey, listen, this is my first time since I met my husband 27 years ago with another man. And he was just nice about it. He was kind about it. But he was also funny because, you know, he had been single for longer and he knew the words and, you know, he, he had a whole dialect of, uh, you know, words that were associated with sex that like, it just all made me laugh. I thought I was like in a porno, like, you know, for, for better or worse, like I felt like, just use your imagination, Laura, use your imagination. Just roll with it. <laughs> That's kind of one of the many things that women say who are kind of back out there is that they've got so many concerns, like they're not going to understand the jargon that, you know, online dating hell, that everybody thinks sex is like a porn movie now and everybody wants anal sex. Everybody expects you to, not have any pubic hair. Did you have those concerns? <laughs> totally. But I was so naive. I didn't even know. Like that is, I have to say, like, this is why I laugh. And I think that for my friends who know me, they, they understand that it's uh, the humor of this is that I am the least likely person for this to have happened to, because I am so naive in so many ways. So the first night that I text with this man, he told me I had a really nice pussy and I started cracking up. I didn't know that was yeah. the word people really used. Congratulations, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, that too. Like, I mean, apparently it was really nice. And by the way, that's been validated by other men. So um, <laughs> yay, yay for me. Yay for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so when he said that to me, I just started laughing. Like, do you think I need to hear that? Do you say this to people regularly? Do you think this is going to work on me? But he was like completely non-pussified. He was just like, that's just, you know, how he talks. Uh, so that experience was fine. You know, and then I went out with other people and everybody wanted to have anal sex. I, I'm, it's not my thing. Maybe it will be someday. It hasn't been yet. So that was definitely something people wanted that I was like, yeah, I'm not ready for that. Um, pubic hair was a big discussion. Men really like it to be bare. And I actually just wrote a piece about this for British Vogue about pubic hair and about how styles have changed, you know, and how when I was last single, I thought I was doing my husband a favor if I like cleaned up my bikini line a little bit. Yeah. It was like, you know, full on. I knew people got Brazilians, but like I wasn't going to. I was married and like that hurts. Exactly. I didn't worry about any of it. And that was pretty funny because definitely people let me know when I was doing things that were sort of like things that they wanted. So I did end up dating somebody more seriously. And he was really unpleasantly surprised to find that I still had pubic hair. And I thought, well, I'll try it out. See, it sounds awful, but it was like he said it really kindly. It was just sort of a preference for him. And I was like, I'll never change myself for anybody. So like now I'll have to spite you and I'm going to grow it long for you. Yeah. But then I was kind of curious. And also I really liked him and he was really good to me. And it wasn't like you have to do this to change yourself. It was just a personal preference for him. So I did. I removed it all and I liked it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Did you find a difference in terms of the guy's ages or? No, he was 15 years older than me. So it was just a preference. The younger ones didn't say anything to me. And some of them didn't seem to notice. I mean, some of them, I think, were just like, they were happy to get what they could get. In fact, after I removed it all, I was dating two people, like on different nights, not at the same time. What's it called? Plurals, is it? Plurals, yes. My Saturday nights. It was um, yes. that was a, a term that when I finally decided to upgrade my lingerie, which was really quite needed, the woman who was fitting me for new bras, she gave me one, and I said, "Oh my god, I can't wear this. It's like so fat in the back. It's so wide. This is not sexy." And she goes, "Well, who's looking back there?" And I said, "Everyone is looking back there. Do you know how many men are looking at my back right now, in the back of my bra?" And she laughed. She said, "I get it. You've got plurals. Let's dress you accordingly." <laughs> I loved this woman. So after that, I'd have my plurals on a Saturday night. So I waxed it all off for this one gentleman. And then I went to see the next night or a few nights later, this other gentleman I was dating who didn't even take notice. He didn't even notice. And I thought it was sort of like coming home with a new hair color or hairstyle and your husband doesn't say anything. That's how I felt like, are you going to comment on the fact that I am now completely smooth and bare? Like if you don't know this difference, like, are you, are you paying attention? Cause some people find it really attractive down there. And if you're not going to notice, you may not be worth it. Yeah. If you didn't even notice, that's kind of he clearly wasn't focusing, was he? Yeah, I have high expectations now. <laughs> I'm getting positive feedback. I've come to expect it. So how does it all this compare to sex with your husband? I'm sorry, I don't normally ask people loads of questions like this, but, you know, it's in the yeah. book. So <laughs> It's in the book. And I did tell you I am an open book and anybody can ask me anything. and I'll probably answer it, uh, which is mortifying to my children. But here I am. Yeah. Um, how does sex compare? It doesn't. It's not the same thing. It should be in two categories. They shouldn't even be called the same thing. And that's unfortunately the truth. And I could come up with 20 reasons why that might be the case, you know, whether it's because we had been together for so many years, because we had seen each other in such compromised situations, right? It's like, how do you still see somebody as really sexy and appealing when you've seen them give birth three times and nurse and, you know, sit 
uh, you know, or go to the bathroom, all the things that we do when I see them vomiting because they've got the flu or dripping with a cold. It's like, it's very hard to still see that person in a purely sexual way, the way you do in the beginning of a relationship or when you don't have to be exposed to any of those things. I know people who have satisfying and happy sex lives with their spouses, but I can't imagine that any of them would use the words that I would assign to my sex experiences post-marriage, where I say it's ravenous, it's thrilling, it's raw, it's like hungry and the desire is so high. That wasn't part of my married sex. My married sex was comfortable and it was safe and it was nice. You know, it was a good connection point, but it was like one more thing we did. Like we talk Mm -hmm. about, you know, sending the kids to school or we talk about what our summer plans are going to be. And then on Saturday nights we have sex and that's how it was. That's just honest. I liked it. Uh, My body is pretty cooperative in terms of sex. I understand it's harder for some women to have orgasms or to find it satisfying. It's not so hard for me. I'm very lucky that way. I really have always like paid very close attention to my body to get it right for myself and to make sure that it was something that felt good for me too. You know, it wasn't just like a favor to like help my husband Mm -hmm. out, but it was. And I talk about all the time that it felt like it had become a chore. Well, first of all, every time you're having sex with a first person, it's like so exciting. You don't know what it's going to be like. And everybody has very different styles. And that was really exciting. And I loved my body being touched and I loved being seen for the first time. It was like so exciting to me. And I still feel that way. That didn't go away. There's different kinds of sex, I guess. You know, there's sex that connects you to somebody and emotional sex and breakup sex and makeup sex and all that. But my sex and my marriage, I just am going to say it was pretty much like married sex. So my eldest is now 21 and I had a hard time getting pregnant with her. It took me about a year and a half and we were like taking our temperature and, you know, peeing on sticks. It was like a whole big thing. It was quite unpleasant. And one night, I was getting like a fertility treatment the next day and the doctors had told us that we had to have sex the night before and I broke my elbow that day. I fell and broke my elbow and my husband came home from work to take me to the emergency room to get my elbow set. And I said, I don't know what time we're going to get home. So you actually have to have sex with me right now. He was like, I can't. You're like lying, like you're mangled. I can't. And I was like, no, you, you have to have sex with me. Let's go. And <laughs> to his credit, he did. I don't know how. And we didn't get pregnant, needless to say. Not that time. We did eventually. But I think for me, when I look back at when sex was something fun and just something we did, and it was light and it was like satisfying when it shifted from that to a part of our weekly routine. I would say that was the moment when we were trying to get pregnant that it became a job. It's so interesting. I was struck by something that you said, and I'm probably paraphrasing it in the book, that you'd become complacent in your married life and you were yearning to live life on your own terms. Do you think if this hadn't happened with your husband, you might have left or do you think you would have carried on trying to make it work? I don't think I ever would have left. I really don't. I feel pretty certain about that. I feel that I, I thought I knew myself really well and I wanted the family. That was what I wanted. That was my golden ring that I was reaching for. I wanted a cohesive family. I didn't have one growing up. My husband didn't have one growing up and I wanted to be it. That was very important to me. I mean, when I met my husband and I was 20 years old, I thought, this is great. We've got all this time together now. We're babies and we're going to grow up together and we're going to make our family. And I felt that way. And that was the most important thing to me above and beyond anything else. And the rest of it, how thrilling it was to be seen or desired, that was like part of my other life. And now this was my life. I was a mother and a wife. When I say complacent, I mean, it's what I wanted. And I got what I wanted. I never would have left. I didn't want to be alone. I was anxious about money. I was anxious about how I would do things for myself. I never lived alone before as an adult. I mean, I went right from my childhood home to college to my husband and I moved in together right after we graduated from college. 
So I, I had no desire for those things. And that is why I always say that the affair was a gift. Because if my husband came to me and said, Laura, I'm not happy and we have to do something about it, I would have sunk my claws into him. I would never have let my marriage go. That was not, that was not in my realm. Um, but he made it that I couldn't recover from it. I wanted to, by the way. We went to couples therapy and we tried. I wanted to make it work. And I just, at some point, I realized I couldn't do it. I couldn't love him the way I had. I still love him as a human being and as a friend, but I couldn't love him as my husband anymore. Um, so the, the affair really was a gift to me because it allowed me to have this crazy shift in my life that I never would have seen coming. And interestingly, you know, I think this is true for women at a lot of ages. I was speaking this weekend to a relative of mine who is 73 and she's been widowed for five years. And she told me that she'd been in, she was really happy on being on her own. She loves being alone. You know, she loves her husband and she, she loved him and she misses him, but she also loves being on her own. And she's been happy with that. And she said that after she read my book, she decided she was going to start dating again. She was going to start dating again, which thrilled me. And, um, and she said to me, I have to tell you that the women I know, like she's the women in her book group are around her, the ones who are widowed or divorced. And there's a bunch of them and they range from their fifties to their seventies. They're the happiest women. And I, mm. I promise, I I'm careful when I say this, I don't want to indict, you know, marriage as a collective. And a lot of people are really happily married and, you know, um, and they want to be with their spouses forever. And so I'm not, I'm just, it wasn't like, I didn't find, I lost myself in my marriage. And I think maybe there are women who are more careful about protecting themselves in their marriages um, and maintaining their own identities. I really a hundred percent did not. So it's also possible that if I had maintained more of a sense of myself apart from my husband and my children, that I could have been happier. And so that could exist for a lot of women. But I think there are a lot of other women in my shoes who lose themselves. And when they find themselves alone, it's devastating and terrifying. And then they find themselves and they love themselves. And it turns out to be a beautiful life affirming gift. And that's what it was for me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating because I have spoken to many women who have reached, I mean, older than you, probably into their 50s or certainly 50. And they have, you know, whether it's uh, age and or life stage or, you know, whether it's connected to children leaving, I mean, all manner of different things, but they have turned around and kind of gone, what? <laughs> yeah. All, almost like, you know, 25, 30 years into marriage, kind of like a wake up, but without the hideous wake up that you right. had. And like you say, that's not to say that any of those other things are wrong. It's just to say it does seem to happen quite a lot. Why, why do you think it is that kind of a roundabout? How old are you now? 49? I'm 50. I turned 50 in September. Well, I don't want to say looking good on it because somebody will message me and say, <laughs> but you do look pretty great. Thank you. And I'm not thank surprised you, you don't have any you. trouble pulling, man, pulling men in bars, to be honest. <laughs> thank you. I mean, you know, it's funny. I talk about this a little bit in the book about the way that we view ourselves. Um, I definitely always wished that my 
skin was less freckly. I had like terrible skin as a teenager. My hair is super frizzy and curly. I was wished it was smooth. I'm short. You know, I always thought my boobs were a little too big. Like there's all these things we criticize. And now that I'm 50, like I love my body. I, I just love what it can do. And I'm, and I'm, and I don't like wear a lot of makeup and I don't get work done. And I just like, I think aging is beautiful. Um, I love, I like my little lines, you know, I like my laugh wrinkles and I don't, I like them because I am 50. I'm not 20 anymore. I don't want to look like I'm 20. I love being 50, um, and owning it. I feel like very powerful. So we have a joke in my family. Um, my son and I, he's 18. He and I are both very confident and we have this way. We are always joking around that people like are very nice to us because they're in love with us. And so I'll say like, oh, the handyman came to, you know, fix whatever. And then he ended up fixing 18 other things because I think he's a little bit in love with me. And my son does the same thing. And we're like kind of joking, but kind of serious. And my daughter, my 21-year-old is not like that at all. She's pretty sure everyone hates her. And she goes, where do you get this ridiculous Mm -hmm. confidence from you two? And how do I get some of it? And I said, it's kind of a joke. It's kind of a joke to walk around in the world and be like, oh, everybody loves me. It's funny. And then if you do it enough, you might start to see it, like that people respond to you. I said, just fake it. Literally just fake it until you start to believe it. Because my son and I do that and it totally works for us. I don't literally believe everyone's in love with me, but I believe that if you give someone a really nice smile or a nice thank you, they'll respond to you. I, I do when people are nice to me. So um, that didn't answer your question about why. I can't even remember what the question was, but it's it's really, no, that's really interesting because I was just sitting here thinking, when you said your daughter said, how do I get some of that? I was thinking, yeah, how do you get some of that? The title of my book, it's really about being available. And I made myself available. That's not because I thought I was so beautiful. I didn't. I'll list a thousand flaws in my physical appearance, but I was confident that whatever I had, whether it was frizzier hair than I wanted or bigger boobs than I wanted, that it didn't really matter because I owned it and I felt powerful because of and in spite of it. So I think any woman could have it. You just have to say it to yourself. Like, I'm here for it. I'm 50. I'm powerful. I'm strong. Anybody would be lucky to have some time with me. I mean, sometimes you do it and you laugh at yourself. Trust me, sometimes I do that. And then like, nobody looks at me and I'm like, well, that's just rude. You know, like I definitely have gone out and I'm like, where are my admirers? Where are my fans? And like, I'm, no one's looking at me. Trust me. It's not like I'm, you know, it's not like I'm hitting home run all the time. And I even talk in the book about this one time I came back from the country and I was back in the city again. New York City is filled with beautiful people. And I'm looking around thinking, God, I was doing great up there. There's like, I really do not have much competition up there, but now I'm back. Everybody here is drop dead, gorgeous and well-styled. And I can't hold a candle to these women. And I don't know what I was thinking, you know, but I reorganized my thoughts and I realized like, you still got it, whatever it is, whatever it is, you know, for people who are listening, whether it's a twinkle in your eye or a special smile, or as my friend Lauren always says, the way I shrug my shoulder, you know, we all have it. We just have to own it and let it shine. I really think we all have it in us. Is it all tied towards the end of your marriage or are there other factors, do you think? I think there's a few factors. One, I think is middle age, right? I think it's owning where we are in midlife. So I love that I kind of know who I am now. And that when I am dating, like I'm not looking for a life partner. I'm not looking for someone to build a family with. I'm looking for someone to complement who I am. So that's part of it. And I think part of it really was about writing this book. I want to say that I recovered or I started the process of recovering from the end of my marriage before I started writing, obviously, because of the content. 
But the writing process really helped me. And I think being able to say like my whole life, I've loved to write. I was an English major in college. I always thought that maybe I'd go for my MFA one day. And instead I ended up going into publishing. And then I stopped working after my kids were born. You know, my writing really amounted to like helping friends with speeches they were writing or, you know, proofreading emails for my mom or, you know, just helping out my husband with proposals. So when I started writing again and people liked my writing, like I was showing it to friends and they would say, keep going. I thought, oh, wow, this is something else I can do. I can not only like be available to men, I also have a voice. I can use it. I can use it to tell my story. I can use it to empower other women. And I didn't know I had it. And so I I would say that coming into my own has been as much about my marriage ending as also finding my voice as a writer. I love to write now. I love it. I sit down, you know, I've been hired to write a few pieces here and there. And every time I think I have that imposter syndrome, like, do they realize that I'm really just like a PTA mom who like writes newsletters and like zhuzhs up my friend's speeches for them? But then I like it. I write it and I like it. And people seem to be accepting it. And I think anybody can do that too. You know, even being able to say, I am a published writer now. That is so, I mean, that's like a true dream come true. And I, I think being able to say, I made that happen. I can't believe it. I can't believe I had that in me. You know, when that's where I say we all have so much inside of ourselves that we don't know this untapped energy and talent. In a million years, if you had told me this is where I would be today, I would have laughed at you. I mean, I would have thought that was absurd. But, you know, people can't make that happen for you. You know, all of this. I did it. That's pretty empowering. And I don't want to sound egotistical because I did it with a team. I have a lot of really good friends. I have a good family. You know, I have the support of my ex-husband. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm a one-woman show. I am not. But at the end of the day, you really only have the voice in your head and the things you tell yourself. And you only have yourself. You know, the person I thought I was going to rely on for the rest of my life turned out not to be reliable and had to understand that to survive and thrive, it was going to have to be found inside of me. Nobody is going to get you out of bed in the morning when you're depressed. Nobody is going to mother your children when they are grieving in the way that you want to. Nobody is going to tell you it is okay to go and have sex with a stranger. You are the only person that can do that for yourself. So you may have the best team in the world, but it's the power you find inside of yourself that will propel you forward. That's all you really have. We can't know another person. Sometimes we don't know ourselves, right? I mean, I think in many ways, I really didn't even know myself. So how can I ever think I really can understand another human being? That's brilliant. Uh, I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask. What's your emotional age? When I heard you asking other people, I decided to take a bunch of quizzes online of what's your emotional age. (laughs) And um, it was hilarious because they were basically tailored to 20 something. So it was like a guy you're dating is ghosting you. You know, what do you do? And I was like, well, let me think if I was 21, what would I do? So my emotional age was still coming out 35 to 45. But I really believe I'm 50. That is my emotional age. I am right where I am. It's the first time in my life I've ever felt present. This is me at 50. And that is where I am emotionally. And what would you do if a guy you were dating was ghosting you? (laughs) Just out of interest. Fuck him, honestly. I I would just (laughs) think I was too good for him. Too many fish in the sea. Too many. (laughs) Excellent. Is there either a book you've read recently that you really loved or a book that, you know, has really meant a lot to you or had a big influence on you? So there's a million books that I love. The one book I read recently that really changed the way that I 
think about a subject is um, Esther Perel, Perel, who's a sex therapist and a psychologist. Her book, Mating in Captivity, that book profoundly changed my opinion about having sex with somebody over a sustained period of time. It's about being able to sustain sexual passion with your partner over a long period of time. And it made me understand that it is a struggle for just about everybody. And that if you want it to be there and to stay, you have to constantly work at it. You can't just assume that if you say on Saturday nights, we'll have sex, that that's going to be the cure-all. And I've recommended it to every friend I have, because I think that if I had read it when I was married, maybe if I'd been open to it, it would have changed my attitude towards sex. I wouldn't have taken it for granted. Like the little I was giving was enough. And I think I would have paid more attention. I think she's quite brilliant. You know, someone gave me her book, The State of Affairs, right after I found out about my husband. And I like almost threw the book across the room because she's very (laughs) much about two people taking ownership of what's happened. And I was like, I'll take ownership after everyone acknowledges that I am the victim of a heinous. (laughs) Um, And that's not her thing. And so I wasn't ready to read it. It took me about two years to read The State of Affairs. And when I did, I thought it was brilliant. And it taught me a lot. So I would say, mating captivity, if you are married, read it and be open to what she's saying. Don't be defensive, just be open. Interesting. You just recommended it to a few thousand more people. So that's good. (laughs) What one piece of advice would you give younger women? Just have more sex, have fun, sleep around. Don't take it too seriously. Don't keep your eye on the prize. Don't be so goal oriented. I was all about find the husband, get him, lock him in, tie him down and marry him and have your kids. I mean, my husband was a great guy. There was a lot to love about him. It wasn't like I was sacrificing, but I think that young women I know, you know, I have a daughter who's, you know, 21 and lots of friends, daughters who talk to me and we have very open dialogues. And I think a lot of them are oriented toward finding the guy and getting married. And I always say like, it will come. You don't need it now. Right now, you just need to be free and play the field and see who you are, find out who you are and what you like. And, Mm. you know, you think you're like a young Jewish woman and you want a Jewish husband. So then sleep with everything but a Jewish man right now, because if that's what you're going to settle down with, find out what everybody else is made of and see if that's really what you want. Because I think people are very closed. You know, they want the ring. They think they're going to get the happy ever after. Everybody wants the happy ever afters and they want it now. And so I just wish women would just enjoy being young and being free and deciding if if that's what they want and doing it on their own terms. That would be, I wish that was advice, you know, it was a little bit given to me, like, go have more sex, have fun. I I say that to every young woman. I do. You can, you know, the young women I speak to, I sometimes say to them, don't tell your mom I'm saying this to you. Um, but, But here's my advice. And I stand by it. I bet you're so popular with your daughter's friends as well. <laughs> well, I love them. I love them because I love how open they are with me, you know, and I love that we can talk about these things and that I don't I don't judge the, the things that people are doing. I have, there's no judgment for me. The only thing I ever say to them is like, sleep around, use condoms, be smart, take care of yourselves, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. But like, otherwise, no judgment. What's your superpower? I think my superpower is that I am a master compartmentalizer. And I think that when I am in moments where I'm really overwhelmed, like right at this moment, even with so many things going on in my life, I just lost my father. I'm moving out of my apartment in two weeks. This book just came out. Two of my children are graduating next week, one going to college and one leaving elementary school. It's been a huge part of my life since 2005. And my child, my youngest is finally graduating from there. So there's a lot of big ticket items. And I picture little boxes in my brain and little doors that close. And I'm well aware that you can't close those doors forever because you'll one day wake up and just be completely decimated. But I can put things away. And that's what I do. 
So I think I've gotten pretty good at that, of just putting everything away into its own little box and dealing with the most pressing of the boxes. I'm going to say that's my superpower. That is a hell of a superpower, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Tell me an older woman who is your role model, who inspires you. I mean, it has to be my mother. I just, at the end of the day, I could tell you of many older women, you know, that I admire Gloria Steinem and Hillary Clinton, even though I know she's controversial, she's one tough cookie. But at the end of the day, it's going to be my mom. My mother's 79. She's lost two husbands. She has a PhD in computer science. She was a pioneer in her field. She's the most loving, intense, resourceful woman you could ever meet. And a lot of what I get, a lot of my strength, a lot of my understanding that I can do whatever I want to do, that comes from not only watching my mother do it herself, but also her telling me that that is true. I have so much respect and admiration for my mother. That doesn't mean that she didn't make a million mistakes and that we don't fight. I never want to make things seem rosier and sunnier than they are. You know, my mom and I have come to heads many, many times, but I I can't believe what a, a powerful woman she is and what a trailblazer she is. The fact that I was raised by a woman who was like a, a math major, you know, in the 1960s and who got her doctorate in computer science and she's an award-winning computer scientist, but she's also like the ultimate Jewish grandma who every Wednesday is there to pick up her grandchildren from school and take them out for tea or whatever snack they want. And she's got it both. And to me, the fact that you could be a strong woman, a trailblazer, a live life on your own terms, but then also be totally present for your family and love them to death. Just to me, my mom's got it all. I'm grateful that she is the woman who raised me. And lastly, how many fucks do you give? So many more than I wish and so many less than I used to. I'm learning. I really care. I've always really cared about what people think of me and how people perceive me. And then I wrote this book, right, in which I'm basically like running down the street naked. If I cared as much as I used to care, I would be buried under the covers right now and I would never (laughs) emerge again, right? Like, how could I show my face? I give a lot of fucks when it comes to my kids still and about what matters to them. But even that, I don't want to take care less about, but just to say, guess what? If I'm not hurting you, you're going to have to live with the embarrassment and I'm not going to keep apologizing for it. And I'd say I'm definitely like shrugging my shoulders now and just saying like, you know what? This is who I am. And you can take me or leave me unless you're my children, which you can't leave me. And I'll do my best to work through (laughs) it with you. But otherwise, you know, this is who I am. I'm not for everybody and I don't have to be. That's brilliant. Thank you, Laura. Thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely great. Brilliant. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 